manipulate the price of gold and silver. But all that money printing that they've done has flowed into the only non-manipulated currency in the world, and that is Bitcoin. I think this is totally different. No, no different. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Once in a while, you can Bitcoin changes absolutely everything. What's in there? Only what you take with you. Before we begin today's show, just a small announcement. Australia is having its first Bitcoin-only conference, Bitcoin Alive, on the 15th of April in Sydney. Uh, so yeah, you can use the code HONEYBADGER, that's H-O-N-E-Y-B-A-D-G-E-R, to get a 10% discount on your tickets. Moreover, if you do end up using the code, send me a screenshot, and I'll send you 5,000 sats over lightning. Hope to see you there. Hey, morning, Peter. Thanks for making the time, and welcome to the show. How about Good we morning, jump man. straight into it and uh, you give the audience a bit of a background about yourself? Sure thing. Well, um, I am very fortunate to have gone down a Bitcoin rabbit hole and have a new obsession where I occupies an inordinate amount of space in my brain where it uh, feels like every thought revolves around Bitcoin, uh, much to the dismay of friends and family around me. But uh, uh from a professional perspective, I run a multifamily office in in Sydney. I look after maybe a dozen high net worth families, <clears throat> which encompasses giving advice across a range of asset classes from stocks, property, bonds, and shares, and and now Bitcoin for maybe the last six or so, maybe seven years, we've been giving advice in that in that field. So it seems to be a growing area of interest. And as time goes by, it's becoming a more and more palatable investment option for families so it's uh that's a little bit about me been doing this for or been in the finance game for the last 25 years and uh i enjoy that space oh that's awesome see and it just dwelled like you said a dozen families it's just a dozen families that you have more clients or it's it's broken down into two two facets we look after a dozen families holistically for for their entire investment advice and and other advice capacities and then there are probably maybe 30 clients that we look after from a bitcoin investment and custody perspective we basically deliver advice around bitcoin where we help clients to understand bitcoin first and foremost understand the value proposition then get them focused on entering or dipping their toe in the market buying a little bit trying to continue to educate them as to the potential value of this thing and then hold their hand right through to effectively delivering uh, delivering a, a multi-seed collaborative custody uh, self-sovereign setup for them so that there yeah. is so that they actually have a self-sovereign setup they control their own keys they control their own coins they don't have any potential blow-ups with say an FTX type style arrangement or a BlockFi or a Celsius we've We've managed to steer clear of all of that. Our advice is really boring and really sane. Um, 
unfortunately boring works and yep. and this is where when clients want to you know talk about fancier things where it's like oh we want to yield on our product or <laughs> other things like that it's like look i don't know what to tell you and it's going to blow up at some stage and yep. i would highly highly uh, recommend not doing that and, yeah. and and sadly we've had for, for the majority of clients the value proposition is enough for them in that buying bitcoin and just holding it and understanding that if they custody this for a, an extended period of time, it's going to deliver outsized returns and dwarf anything else in their portfolio. It's what my expectation is. And, you know, directionally, yeah. we're correct on that, despite the fact that we've had gone through a fairly significant bear market in the last 14 months. What is difficult, I, I think, for, for clients to understand is it's, it's, it's a very unique investment in that it doesn't have cash flows. So it's most aligned with, well, most aligned from a, from a values perspective or a valuation perspective with gold. However, it's a much more meaningful technology than gold. And, and this is where when you're looking at the gamut of investment opportunities that are out there in this world, you've had a complete re-rating of all of the assets that are available. And this is what has been particularly difficult in my role in the last 14 months. It's it's a macro environment that we've never seen before. It's exceptionally difficult to navigate. Uh, a lot of people understanding that I'm very focused on Bitcoin typically ask me, are you worried about Bitcoin? Do you have trouble mm. sleeping at night? And I, the answer is very simple. It's like, no, I don't because I've got a very uh, meaningful portion of my investments in Bitcoin. And that is literally the least of my worries. If people understood how bad everything else was relative to Bitcoin, there'd be a lot of sleepless people in the world. And this is where part of part of my job is to really understand what the clients understand and help bring their level of understanding across all the asset classes to improve their level of understanding so that they can make better investment decisions on a risk-adjusted basis. And this is where... On a personal note, spending such a, a huge amount of time staring at this problem or this opportunity that is Bitcoin, you know, the more you stare at it, the more you look at it, the more you learn, the more you realise that this is a solution to a lot of problems that we have. And really, I don't think anyone truly understands what Bitcoin is just yet, but, you know, we're trying to map that out in front of us and it's a it's an evolving technology that we just don't have a meaningful map forward of it yet, but I can tell you that there are some really critically value uh, or critically valuable value props in yep. Bitcoin right now that a lot of people haven't really focused on or looked at. And in a world that feels like it's it's, it's going to uh, disintegrate, or there's a there's a degradation of trust across all of our institutions, and I might just take a moment to talk about that. We've got across all of our institutions, whether it's high-level government, our politicians, um, our medical institutions, our doctors, our legal system, our you know, law enforcement system, and most recently our you know, financial system, there's been a severe degradation of trust from the authorities or institutions that effectively are responsible for being the authorities in that perspective. And this is where people are starting to question 
what has been the narrative that's been dictated from our authorities. And this is where Bitcoin is effectively an ability for you to do your own research and to determine what is actually happening on a network scale within Bitcoin. Anyone with a computer, you know, with an internet connection can actually check the health of the network and realize that, hey, this thing's actually functioning as advertised. Whereas just about everything else in our lives is open to interpretation, which is a very, it's a complete paradigm shift. And this is where I think a lot of people are fed up with fundamentally the bullshit that they've been told for the last, you know, decade or whatever it is. And it feels like that the level of lies and mistrust, well, the level of mistrust that the general population has in our institution, our experts and authorities is continuing to grow. And people are questioning themselves because what they're watching and what they're being told doesn't match up. Yep. And so a lot of people are basically frustrated and looking for alternatives and they don't realize or haven't put two and two together yet that maybe Bitcoin's an answer for a lot of these problems that we have. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in a, in a single statement, like it's like fixed the money, fixed the world, right? Like it's like if you <laughs> fix the money, then all these other things fall into place. Do you agree to that? Wholeheartedly. And yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually, it, it probably goes deeper than the money because yep. what Bitcoin is, is basically an incentive structure. And when you look deeper than the money, and this is where, you know, to the point earlier that we look at money and money's the first abstraction layer that we put above the Bitcoin network. And, you know, when I'm talking to clients, talk to them about what is great water bottle, by the way. I love that little Bitcoin on it. <laughs> that's that's awesome. The uh, <laughs> Sorry to distract you. Yeah, um, sorry. What, what's interesting is that, you know, when you look at the network, Bitcoin's network itself, it's incredible. It's incredibly resilient. It is an absolute technological marvel that it keeps working, regardless of the attacks or all of the, you know, all of the problems yep. in, you know, quotes that people say that it has. But if you look at the actual network itself, the network hasn't stopped running. It's still working. It's still producing blocks every 10 minutes, give or take. The hash rate is at all-time highs. The hash rate in the last six months I cannot get over has just gone absolutely vertical. I think it's gone from 230 three, four months ago to 400 exahash was the last number I saw. So the, the security of the network and the amount of computing power to support and secure the network has absolutely ripped higher. So it's more secure than it's ever been. And then you've got more nodes operating on it to act as watchtowers to make sure it's still, you know, the miners are doing what they're meant to be doing. So the actual network itself has never been stronger. And where I think a lot in the financial press and a lot of people who are looking at Bitcoin don't really understand is we only look at the dollar or the dollar value that we put as the first abstraction layer on top of the Bitcoin layer. And that, from a from a human psyche perspective, makes a lot of sense because fundamentally, you know, our infinitesimal little reptilian brains are basically driven by one of two things, fear and greed. So although I think Bitcoin enables you as a person to evolve and gain a much higher consciousness and evolve past that little reptilian brain, everyone comes to Bitcoin for the same reason, basically getting rich. Yep. And so that 
that abstraction, that money abstraction layer that we put on is the first abstraction layer that we put above Bitcoin. And what people get confused is, is that they see an 80% drop in the value of Bitcoin and they think that the network itself has fundamentally gone down or not worked or not delivered on a value prop. And they don't really understand that the value prop is basically just, you know, basically delivering blocks every 10 minutes. Yes. So I, I spend a lot of time thinking and looking about that and really trying to understand a better way to value what that value prop is. Because mm. if you look at the technologies that Bitcoin delivers, there are probably somewhere between three and five like genuinely step change, unique technology improvements that we've never seen before. Whether you want to call it a discovery or uh, a creation, I don't know what you want to call it. But what it fundamentally is, is a huge shift forward for society, for finance, for trust, for effectively improving those incentives within, you know, within our society. All of a sudden, you know, this is the first system I've seen that can align incentives across billions of people. And when you think about that, that's a very unique value proposition that I don't think anything else in the world has. This is literally the first time we've seen a single system that can develop um, effectively a, a single incentive structure that can benefit everyone. Yep, yep. Lots to unpack there with this. Uh, yeah, just your earlier two statements. But I wanted to go back. Like you said, you're 25 years in the finance game. So what was the early days like? What? really got you started there and yeah oh good question well i was an ambitious young man and i thought i wanted to be an investment banker and earn a million bucks a year and i i was prepared to do whatever i needed to do to to do that whether it was work 20 hours a day and seven days a week or what have you and i caught up with a friend who uh actually it was a a friend of my father's and uh to this day he's still a great mate and i'd known him for 30 seconds we went and had a quick chinese uh he was going to give me some career advice and at the time i was currently well at the time i was working for bt funds management a, a fairly large funds management business in sydney at the time and i told this stranger basically i want to be an investment banker and earn a million bucks a year and i'd known him for 30 seconds and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, mate, you're too stupid to do that. Why don't you come and do mortgages where we're all stupid? If you've got half a brain, you'll look really good and do okay. And I've got to say that was some confronting career advice, but it was really fabulous advice. He was, um, it, it was basically, it, it brought in a career change that basically moved me into the mortgage industry. It gave me a great backing of credit. I was in that industry for 10 years, uh, a right. fabulous bunch of people. His advice was right. You can do really well in that business and you don't have to be that smart. You just have to work really hard and and deliver great service. And that, that yep. gave me an understanding and a backing of a different side of the balance sheet, basically liabilities, how to mm -hmm. assess risk, how to assess credit, you know, what's a good risk, what's a, you know, what's bad risk. How do you, I guess, mitigate for, you know, from a credit perspective when you're loaning yes. money? Um, it, it was a fabulous experience. And then shortly after, well, not shortly, I was in that for 10 years. And then wow. yep. 
just pre-GFC, um, my father's advisor, who's a great family friend and was chairman of one of the one of the big financial institutions in Sydney, basically said, Pete, you're on the wrong side of the balance sheet. You should basically be on the equity side rather than the debt side. There's probably some trouble coming down the way. And lo and behold, about a year later, there was the, the GFC. So mm. in that time, I basically used um, that time to retool myself on the other side of the balance sheet, which was basically giving investment advice on equities and the like. And what was really unique is that the the time I spent doing the credit gave me a really good understanding of property investment. Say, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I was just so going to say was, that. Like, yeah. It was a really, like, it's ended up being a, a sort of a fabulous school that I went to. Hmm. Um, it was a school of hard knocks and just basically assessing deals, looking at investment properties and, you know, what clients were investing in, how they were investing in it, what sort of returns they were looking at, what was capital growth outlook um, in, in, in Australia and particularly Western democracies, full stop. You know, the last 40 years have really been focused, you know, the majority of the returns have been focused around capital gains, not not income when it comes yep. to property. So um, we got to basically develop that we still use to this day a whole host of tools that we look at when assessing, you know, investment properties and maximising returns in that space. Now, having said that, I think everything's gotten a whole lot harder than what it was 12 or 13 years ago. Yeah. And I can talk to that. But um, the, the background in credit was a really great sort of lesson in life as to, to understand what is risk and then yes. moving to the other side of the balance sheet with equities and being in there since well for over 15 years now it's <clears throat> it's sort of given me a, a really well-rounded education on what to look for from an investment and it's given me a probably a fairly unique way of looking at and assessing risk so yep yep yeah i was fortunate to work uh, around three years in uh, in the credit side of yeah in banking so we are like a team of four that manage close to two million worth of assets or, or credit rather yeah so it's, but, it's fascinating yes you get to see, you get to see just about every rort in finance yep. tried to be perpetrated on you when you're trying to assess credit it's like yes. you know are, are the valuations correct can we trust these valuations? How are the comparables? Mm -hmm. You know, and then you've got to actually look at the actual underlying asset. Like, is it, you know, is it a knockdown? Is it literally just, you know, blow it over, it's going to fall over? Or is this thing really, you know, worth yes. multi-million dollars? It's um, it's just so complicated. It's it's fabulous, the, the level of, I guess, insights you can gain on, you know, doing that. And it, can come across as really boring, but from an investment perspective and an investment geek, you get to go through, you know, some enormous, an enormous detail on, yep. you know, uh, assessing investments that you'd never otherwise see. So I have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Recently I've heard, like I came across that in Australia, they're offering you mortgages, which you can pass on to your kids. Oh Is God. <laughs> I I'm not familiar with that. I just okay. think that, that 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 is inherently, ironically, inherently a major problem. But um, one th one product that I am familiar with that has been around for sort of fifteen years, uh, ten years at least, a decade, is is a family pledge product where um, you know if someone has equity in their home, if parents have equity in their home, and the kids want to go out and buy a property, they can basically use some equity in their parents' home as the deposit component 
to then go and borrow 100% on the home that the kids are wanting to purchase. So the parents guarantee a little bit. The kids go and buy, say, in round numbers, the, there's a million-dollar property purchase. There's a yep. The deposit of 200000 would be a $200,000 loan on the parents' home, and then the kids would borrow, and they'd be responsible for paying the two hundred. And then they'd right. also have an eight hundred thousand dollar loan on their on their home that they're purchasing. So that was a fabulous product to get kids into the market. And then what would happen there is when the property went up in value enough to refinance the parents' two hundred thousand dollar loan, they'd just remove they'd remove the the guarantee from the parents and the right right the collateral right. from the, the collateral from the parents and move it over to their own property. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I don't know how popular that product is now, but that was a, a really good way of getting young people into the property market right now. But I've got to say, timing-wise and macro and the rest of it, that is something I would not be looking at right now. Yes, yes. And something else that I came across is that the best time to buy property has like gone. Like The best time was early 90s, late 90s. And yeah, and that slipped. Like now it's yeah, not a good time. Or, or like there's no... Not even not a good time, but there's no scope in like for for an individual like purchasing property or for this current generation to buy property. Any thoughts on that? Yes, I agree with you. I think okay. it's really difficult from a value proposition. What what we've got is we've got, and and probably even push that back further. For the last forty years, you've had economic tailwinds basically pumping up property prices. You mm. started in the early eighties. You started with all-time high interest rates and all-time low asset values on a relative basis. And what you've seen since is a steady accretion in property prices. And you've seen until literally the last 12 months, you've seen 40 years of descending interest rates. Now, there have been some little blips along the way, but fundamentally you've seen, you know, look at the US because that's the biggest market and it affects us anyway. We effectively follow that market. But what you've seen is since 1980-something, early 80s, you've seen rates start at 18 and effectively get to zero. Yep. And so what's happened is when you go from having to finance something at 18 to finance something at zero, it effectively pushes up the value of assets dramatically. Mm. And so the perfect time to buy property was 40 years ago where you had that macro set up with really high interest rates, really low asset prices. And what we've seen for 40 years is literally asset prices go up, interest rates go down, and now we're kind of near the bottom of where interest rates are. So yeah. you know, if, if you look at that setup alone, and I'm not sort of giving any advice here to not buy property or do buy property, you've all you've all got to live somewhere. We all have to live somewhere. So you probably want to buy a property at some stage. But from an investment perspective, when you've got a complete inversion of what were the best setup for buying property in the last 100 years, when you've got the complete inversion of that happening right now, do you want to be buying property now? Mm. Um, it's got to be a really compelling investment if okay. I want to put money into that type of that type of investment. It's it's going to be really compelling. Either exceptionally low risk, exceptionally high upside. Is there development potential with the site? I don't know. Why am I getting something cheaper than what the market thinks it is? Given yeah, that interest rates be... are low and asset prices are high. And there's nowhere for like interest rates can't go negative or maybe they can, but they can't keep going lo lower than from where they are. Will this start changing back? Like assets price dropping low, interest rates going higher? 
Is that what's going to ha- You think like this is probably just an assumption, but you think that's how it's going to go? Or are we going to float around this low interest rates, high asset prices? Uh, this is a really tough question. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm it's not an sure assumption, it's right? Like it's an, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really hard thing to do, and it, it's all a scale of probabilities when yep. when looking at something like that. You know, all things being equal, we should have a flow back to what has been a traditional rate of finance or interest. We should have asset prices come back to being circa, give or take, somewhere around, um, you know, a, a percentage or a multiple of what your household income is, and. What you what you're looking at right now is is that interest rates now are probably at a pretty close to a long term fair fair rate, but asset prices are Still. exceptionally higher than that. When you look at you know how much a an average home costs in say Sydney, you've probably got that at about ten times, or maybe even more, maybe about fifteen times an average income. That's not a long term sustainable like proposition for. For society to run with so I look at that and i think there needs to be a return to mean you know when mm-hmm. something if that's the mean and something's way up here it kind of has to go down it's just gravity by default that's how maths works and one of the investment strategies that we used to look at for for clients well we still do we still use this but you know we just haven't done it in a long time because it's just been not a compelling value proposition but Think about that from a property investment perspective. If you look at, say, the average median house price of Sydney, it's circa 1.2, 1.3 maybe. I don't know what the number is now. I haven't looked at it in probably you know, six or 12 months. But one of the investment strategies that we looked at was effectively buying a property that was as far below that median house price in Sydney that we could And the reason being is that over time, we know that there is going to be a closing of that median house price where that really low-valued property is effectively going to work closer to that median Mm -hmm. house price in Sydney. Mm -hmm. Whereas the top-end house prices of Sydney that are way over it, mathematically speaking, will probably come down. Now, that hasn't really happened in Sydney um in our our market here because it just feels like the top end property just gets more and more expensive but mm. you know depending on what your time frame is it's you know basically like a law of the universe yeah it'll return to median makes sense yes mm. okay circling back to bitcoin and your clients what some of the common questions or concerns that is some of your clients have like is there any common trend when you like speak to them about bitcoin i think it's it's quite topical it's usually what's ever printed in the news so the last 12 months have been dominated by things like terra luna three arrows capital celsius BlockFi, genesis you name it um even gemini's sort of got problems and there's or ftx the biggest one of all yep you know like oh hey what what's going on here like you know is this bitcoin's dead and you know for a lot of clients they've done the work and they know that there's the conflation that the media makes between you know bitcoin and the actual exchanges but for some clients they look at it and think oh 
this is a real problem for Bitcoin. And it's like, no, well, yes, it is a problem for Bitcoin in the fact that Bitcoin gets smeared by, you know, by association with, say, a blow up in FTX. But yeah. from the actual network perspective, the, the network has never missed a beat. And it, it's funny. One of the things we do for clients is we we try and get the best Bitcoiners in the world to come and have a chat to them. So okay. about a year ago, we had Vijay Boyapati one of my all-time favourites and an absolute legend in this space. Um, he he came and had a chat to us. One of the questions I asked him was, Vijay, what, what do you see being a problem for Bitcoin? And he is such a genius and the loveliest guy. He, he said, the, the problem I see coming in is not so much the network ever being affected. I think that's rock solid. We're not going to have problems with that, but we will have a problem where a major exchange will go down and then that will create a reputational risk or damage by association to Bitcoin. And all of a sudden, trust in Bitcoin will go down dramatically and it'll take years to rebuild because a huge focal point of the industry via an exchange has effectively gone down and that's literally exactly what transpired six months after the fact. Yeah. He said that. And... It's for us, it's just about education and focusing on the network. If people understand the network and then the value proposition with sort of those key innovations that Bitcoin provides, then you can disassociate Bitcoin from the noise of an exchange going down or something else happening. And that's where we try and spend a lot of time with clients to increase their understanding of it so they don't have any concerns when FTX blows up. And on a personal point, it sort of, you know, what what we deliver to clients is effectively institutional grade custody. And we spend a lot of time basically setting them up with their own hardware wallets, their own accounts. They've got full control over everything. Custody is literally theirs. And mm -hmm. some of the clients get really uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say they 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 get frustrated with the process. They're like, why is this so difficult? Yep. And it's like, well, Unfortunately, you want the best custody you can get, and I don't want to give you second-rate custody. Yeah. And so the back and forward is, is like, hey, this is really painful for a reason, because if it's really painful for you to do and you know how to do everything in your process, imagine how hard that is for someone to steal. Yes. And at the same time, when an FTX-type situation happens, it reinforces to the clients, hey, this is the reason now why we do all of this stuff. We want to hold this asset for the next you know, call it 5, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever their timeframes are, I'm working on maybe a more permanent timeframe, but, yep. you know, they understand, oh, when they see an FTX blow up or one of the like, they realise, oh, maybe it was worth doing all that. So, yeah. And you have, you help your clients get self uh, multi-six setups. Uh, is that mm -hmm. you holding a key with them? Is it just them? Uh, oh, it's it, it's varies, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's it's fundamentally whatever they want. Okay. So, yeah. literally, what we deliver is whatever our clients want, and if they don't have an idea what they want, I'll get them started. Yeah. And so, I don't want to deliver a client a single seek setup, particularly not straight out of the bat. That to me terrifies me. The thought of giving a client, "Hey, here's your single hardware wallet here are your 24 words don't lose that there's a million bucks sitting on it it's like yeah. no way no way on earth and 
I think it's an evolution, to tell you the truth. So for us, we can deliver uh, with a multi-sig setup, collaborative custody. We can deliver to the client full self-sovereignty where they have complete control of their Bitcoin. And at the same time, if they completely muck up everything that we do for them, literally, if they lose the key, lose the word, other than sending their Bitcoin to the wrong address, we can literally recover their Bitcoin. Yep. And that is a huge benefit, particularly when it comes to the next stage of a client's life when you think about Bitcoin from an estate planning perspective. And this is sort of the... Mm. Um, the in, in thinking about this, you know, set up for everyone, and I don't pretend to have answers here. I just have, you know, seven years' experience of delivering this to clients. And I don't share this with you to say, hey, this is what you've got to do, because I don't believe in that. My My personal ethos, particularly when it comes to Bitcoin, is you do you. There's no... There's no solutions, only trade-offs, basically. Yep. You know, you've got to you've got to make those trade-offs as to what you're comfortable with. Now, for me, if my clients don't know anything, which is typically the situation that happens when clients come to me, well, I make those trade-offs for them. And the trade-offs I make for them are, hey, you're going to have full self-sovereignty, but you're going to have a default backup until you tell me you don't want the default backup. And I'm thrilled to say that on more than, well, more than two occasions, we've had that situation where clients have literally lost everything that we've done for them. And if we had put them into a single C setup, they literally would have lost their Bitcoin. And I'm talking millions of dollars of Bitcoin. Yep. And I, I literally would not be able to sleep at night knowing that I'd helped a client purchase that amount of Bitcoin and then they've lost it. Yep. I mean, that is just irresponsible. What sort of custodian or fiduciary duty is that and so it's an evolution it's you know taking a client on a journey that hey we're all on this together literally everyone's learning i don't pretend to know i have all the answers you know i constantly seek out the best in the business you know a shout out to to <coughs> to katan and parman you know those guys are you know fabulous with you know their knowledge and sharing and helping and you know because katan's in sydney i i often have him help out myself and clients you know with any learning that we need he's fabulous on the education front he you know he's an absolute gift to to bitcoin and he does all of that effectively for free and i i try and you know effectively employ katan for his services firstly because he's a genius he's the best in the world at what he does and and thirdly i want him to generate an income off this so he can deliver more and more fabulous education content and ideas around bitcoin because he's a mega brain in this space so yeah. that's how we build out the community yes. and and this is where you know guys like that with technical now technical expertise uh, are of enormous value in in delivering this sort of thing so full circle back to the clients if, if clients come to me and say, hey, I want Bitcoin, I'm like, great, this is what you get served up with zero knowledge. You get a multi-seat collaborative custody with multiple backups, multiple redundancies. You can lose your keys. You still won't lose your Bitcoin. And most importantly, and this is <clears throat> to the point earlier that I think a lot of Bitcoiners are now starting to realize is the benefit of having a multi-seat collaborative custody is that if you fall over tomorrow, how we set up the Bitcoin estate plan protocol ensures that 
their beneficiaries, their executor of the estate, their children, their wife, whoever it may be, their significant other, is not going to be wondering how to get those Bitcoins to pay for their life or do whatever they need to. There is, and this is where the service we deliver, I think is really critical, is that we've thought, and it's only because I've had to think about this, you know, for my family, for my children, and, and I want to deliver this to my clients, is we insert ourselves at that juncture in a, in, in a client's life that if, for whatever reason, they fall over and they can't communicate that message to their loved ones, there's a redundancy built in here that is going to ensure that their loved ones get their Bitcoin and can actually benefit from it. And, mm. you know, I understand that, you know, a lot of Bitcoin, Bitcoiners uh, exit strategy is death and I'm all for that. But if you want to see your, you know, your, your beneficiaries, your, you know, your better half or, or your children benefit from all of this hard work that you've done around Bitcoin, then ensuring that you have a, a plausible Bitcoin estate plan protocol that's going to ensure the safe custody or transfer of those Bitcoins to your loved ones is really critical. And this is fundamentally what we deliver. So. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And uh, did you have clients come back and saying, okay, I've learned enough. Now I don't need your help with uh, a multi six set, set up. Uh, uh, they still I, feel. Yeah. 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 We've okay. Got that. Wow. Yeah. 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 And it's it it's a it's it, it's a it's a proud moment and it's a sad moment too. Mm. And it's it's proud because you know they're 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 big they're bitcoiners, right? Like yeah. they totally get it. And mm. ha having said that, we we haven't had um in our latest round, we haven't had clients completely leave what they do is they typically leave a key and a responsibility with us yep to deliver outcomes for their family so that's something that's very difficult to do and they want a trusted party a trusted third party with it so that's how we've been able to deliver that ongoing service have you heard of op walls or open up walls or walls up walls no I'm I have sure. heard of it, but yeah. I'm, I'm happy to learn more. No, I, yeah, I'm not really familiar with that. I've just heard it as well, like in, in some podcasts recently, but it's it's similar to what your brother Mike did, I guess. It's like locking it up and we're locking Bitcoin up at a certain mm -hmm. block or locking it up at a certain time in the future where it will only unlock Bitcoin then. So that makes it safer as well, right? So even if someone gets your keys or gets yeah gets your seed phrase, they won't be able to get uh, transfer all of your Bitcoin. They would only be able to transfer whatever's available or whatever's unlocked in that period. And then ahead, then it, yeah, there's more unlocked as time goes by, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think that time locking yep. is a really critical tool and it's completely underrated in the bitcoin mm. space for many facets and you think about it from a security perspective in a multi-sig setup you know you a lot of i think bitcoiners rightly concerned about say five dollar wrench attacks well a multi-sig collaborative custody arrangement helps reduce that concern of a multi of, of, of a you know five dollar wrench attack dramatically but then when you overlay the functionality of being able to time lock a Bitcoin into the future with multi-sig, with collaborative custody, 
all of a sudden, you know, imagine someone comes to rob you for your Bitcoin and they're like, hey, we're going to whack you over the head until you give us your Bitcoin. It's like, well, it's in a time lock for the next 10 years. So grab a seat, get comfy. The bedroom's over there. Like <laughs> you're going to have to, you're going to have to wait 10 years to get this. It's like all of a sudden and, you know, it totally reduces the the threat vector of of doing that. And then at the same time, from a security perspective, when you think about what time locking delivers, I mean, there are so many unmentioned benefits to the time locking that I look at. I think, you know, first and foremost, you talk about having your Bitcoins in cold storage. I had a great chat to Knut about this, and I love his thought of element zero, Bitcoin yep. being element zero. And I talked to him about time locking and how I think it's the first quantum time locking of Bitcoin allows Bitcoin to be the first quantum asset. And there's a whole nother conversation on that. But he said to me, he goes, oh, my goodness, that's amazing, Pete. I'm like, what is it, Knut? And Knut's one of my all-time favourites. He's a genius. And he said, it's element zero at absolute zero. So it's mm -hmm. the coldest of cold storage that you can make is putting it in a time lock because there is nothing that you can do between now and when the time lock expires to get your Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah. That's a fundamentally very, very powerful thing. And I had this um, conversation just yesterday, actually, with someone and talked about how time locking a Bitcoin, I believe, has the ability to completely redefine our financial system. And mm. let me give you this thought. Yep. Typically, and I would love to have this conversation with Preston because, you know, he talks about his biggest concern or the biggest concern we're facing right now is duration risk. And when you look at that, I believe Bitcoin, when you look at a time-locking ability, has the ability to solve duration risk. And now I'll just take a step back and talk about duration risk. So duration risk is effectively inflation rate risk, interest rate risk, and exchange rate risk. Those three functions effectively are duration, duration and yeah. what you're paying for in duration risk with an option is to mitigate those three risks. Now, my thought process is with Bitcoin and time locking, you can effectively solve for duration risk by time locking a portion of Bitcoin as your duration risk component to a financial contract. And let me give you a sort of out there thought when it comes to the financial markets and bond markets. If you've got a million dollar bond that you want to raise and it's $25,000 a Bitcoin, you might have, you know, 40 Bitcoins equivalent is the mm -hmm. contract. And you might put as a one year time lock Bitcoin, a single Bitcoin or two Bitcoins as your interest payment. Locked in a time lock that expires in one year. Yep. For, for simplicity purposes, let's just think about it as being one Bitcoin locked for one year. Mm -hmm. However, if you've got the same, if you've got the same million dollar bond, but it's a 30-year contract, rather than putting up one Bitcoin as collateral for that entire 30-year duration, you may only need to put up 0.1 of a Bitcoin or 0.01 of a Bitcoin. Mm. And all yep. of a sudden that totally breaks our financial system as we know it because typically the longer the duration of an asset or a you know contract the more duration risk that you have so you need yes. more asset collateral yeah. payment for the risk you're taking 
but Bitcoin effectively inverts that. Yes. Mm-hmm. You would need a lot less. You'd actually, the longer it goes, the less you need. And that's mm. a real head spin. So yeah. I, I I really don't know yeah. how much further to take that. But if any smart people want to reach out and have that discussion, I am here for it. Because I think yeah. that has two benefits. Firstly, it takes a lot of Bitcoin off the market and allows that to be used in a time lock contract that is not possible to rehypothecate. Yep. So that's going to basically reduce the supply significantly. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it's going to help pump the price. Yep. Which is what I'd like to see. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically, that could be used for home loans as well. Like, it's like, oh, what's going to happen to loans with Bitcoin? So, instead of, so you have Bitcoin, instead of selling it, you can lock it up, get some cash, and purchase a home. Potentially, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You could. I don't know how it functions yet, but. Yep. That's fundamentally the premise of it. And this is where it mm. really, you know, it's like a, it's it's an event horizon for finance and humanity because, <clears throat> you know, we talk about in macro circles now, you know, you probably follow and you, you know, you see everyone talk about the fact that there are, you know, inverted yield curves and inverted yes. yield curves are a precursor for recessions and this is a really bad thing and all the rest mm. of it. Well, this will invert the yield curve forever. <laughs> So it's like an event horizon that it totally redefines what our finance system will look like. Because the longer the duration, the less collateral you need to provide in the form of a time lock Bitcoin. Now, that's only possible because of some of the tech innovations that happened with Bitcoin. And I'll just talk very briefly on it. Absolute scarcity. So Mm -hmm. we all know it's 21 million. Censorship resistance seizure resistance, and immutable ledger supply and issuance. Those fundamentally are the four things that enable the ability for Bitcoin to become that quantum asset that I talk of. If you can't have those four properties in an asset, which ironically, there's only one asset on earth that allows you to have those four properties, and this is what makes Bitcoin so unique, and I haven't heard anyone really talking about those four properties and how that will actually significantly impact our use of money. And those four technological innovations effectively lead to and allow for the first quantum asset, which is Bitcoin. When you time lock your Bitcoin, you effectively have now a Schrodinger's Bitcoin. You know, it's not in this wallet and it's not in this wallet and it's kind of floating in the middle until you open, you know, the cupboard door with the plate resting. Yeah. It becomes Schrodinger's Bitcoin. You know, it's not in this wallet, it's not in that wallet until it hits that certain block height. Yes. However, we can use it as collateral for any financial contract on earth. And this yep. is how full circle, it actually helps us solve the duration risk. But at the same time, fund- fundamentally breaks our traditional thinking of finance. Now, sorry to go down that rabbit hole, but it's no. something that's been on my brain a lot, but I just don't know how it gets implemented and what that means. But it will probably bring that singularity of Bitcoin event ha- happen much quicker and that's where we get the the vertical line for yes. bitcoin and price yep yep yeah i think yeah i don't i mean i don't see that happening anytime soon given like 
how how the market currently looks at bitcoin right like it's be like oh the longer yeah there's a loan so you'll have to at least put so say say, say something like unchained they have you got to collateralize the loan 200% or, or over 200% if you want to loan against bitcoin yep. yeah 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 but in yeah. but in the future for sure I, yeah as yeah. I, I don't see it coming anytime soon but i see it coming and, yes. and this is where when you when you look at things and say how we're trying to position our clients to take advantage of this moving forward, you know, we've got well, a minimum of a 10-year view on this. And, mm. you know, for our clients, what we try and do and how we try and structure things is in a way to best position them for what I think is coming down the road. And so what I think is coming down the road is within the next, well, by the by the end of the decade, so let's say 2030, I think, Let's assume, let's just take a wild guess that Bitcoin's trading at 10 million bucks a coin. And how I'm trying to position my clients is that in the event that Bitcoin hits $10 million a coin, by that stage, by 2030, every single bank on earth will be giving Bitcoin loans out because they'll understand that it is the best form of collateral ever invented. I can go into why it's the best form of collateral ever invented. You know, having studied credit for so many years, it's you know, abundantly clear that it's the best yeah, let's go down that collateral Yeah, let's, yeah. Okay, well, so for starters, with credit, you, you want to be able to assess risk and you want to assess a claim. So let's compare Bitcoin or securing a loan with Bitcoin as opposed to securing a loan with, say, a home. Now, in Australia, in Western democracies, effectively the number one finance thing from a dollar value um, outside of government bonds and things like that is effectively the home. That's the largest personal finance you'll ever take. In Australia, it's typically, I don't know, 700,000 to a million bucks a loan type thing. It's <clears throat> when you look at the collateral required to do that, you need to put up a property title to borrow on a home. And when you look at what's required to borrow on a home with that property title, well, in order to get that property title, you need to go to the Office of State Revenue or the Land Titles Office. You need to get a copy of that. You need to do a check, like a legal check with a lawyer to make sure that there are no encumbrances on the property. You need to make sure that there's no existing mortgages. There's no outstanding liabilities on that property. Yep. You need to make sure that there's nothing owing on it, that it doesn't owe council rates, that it doesn't have covenants on it that prevent it from being sold you need to make sure there are no liabilities so to do a to do a have collateral with a property you need to basically go and do these legal searches you need to go to the land titles office you need to employ a solicitor basically go and do all of those searches to make sure you're clear and that's really just the start of it that's the first bit then you need to have an independent valuer to go and value the property and they need to make sure that it's in a certain price range or value range that is going to give them comfort in giving them the amount of money you want. So if you buy for a million dollars, the value needs to go out and make sure that on a relative basis, that thing is worth a million dollars mm -hmm. because they're not going to lend you the money if it's not worth the money you purport it to be. So we need the land titles office. We need a lawyer on the bank side. We need a valuer. Then we need a credit assessor to actually look at the credit worthiness of or character of, of the person borrowing the money. What does their credit look like? 
Mm-hmm. What does their credit history look like? And I know credit credit scoring has been quite a topical issue, particularly in Bitcoin circles for the last, say, 12 or 24 months. But in, you know, in the real world, TradFi, yeah. Yeah. In TradFi world, that's a really significant problem that, yeah. you know, you need to basically look at every single statement that they've done. You know, mm-hmm. do they have outstanding liabilities? Are they paying their liabilities? Do they have significant cash flows that can afford to meet the payments? Yes. So these are all of the credit considerations that basically go into assessing whether or not we want to lend money on this asset. Now, compare that with Bitcoin. I want to lend money on Bitcoin. Well, I get that marked to market every single second of the day, how much that thing's worth. And I don't need to go to the land titles office to determine whether or not I own that property or there's outstanding liabilities on that. I don't need to hire a lawyer to check what's there. I don't need to hire a valuer to go and confirm that, hey, fair market value of a Bitcoin is X amount because I've got it trading on a you know, on a global index 24-7, 365 days a year. I've got liquidity fundamentally, give or take, uh, 24-7, 365. That is something that doesn't happen in any other market. So just from an upfront perspective, that's what you basically assess. There's a whole host of other things, but basically speaking, like for like, this is really simple. Hey, here's my Bitcoin. I transfer it into this wallet. It proves that I have it totally unencumbered. <clears throat> Whereas I need to do all these checks for my title deed for my property that I'm putting up. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, that's just the initial phase of setting up the loan. Then you've got the maintenance of the loan. Hey, is this person basically meeting the repayments of this loan? Are they late? Are they early? Are they basically paying this thing on time? And with a with a with a with a mortgage, with a home loan, it's a really difficult process if someone is not paying the home loan to get them out of that and to recover your money. Yep. Whereas in Bitcoin, what we've seen is if the valuation drops to within a certain range, you immediately get liquidated and they take their money. Yep. There's there's no, oh, hey, we're really sorry. Can you top that up for us? It's like, no, if they're, in, if they're smart, they've got an algo that literally just sells it when it hits a certain number. Yes. Yeah. You know, don't ask the client. They know. They signed up. They've signed an agreement that if Bitcoin drops from, call it 50 grand to 20 grand, 20 grand's your liquidation mark. And unless yeah. you put more collateral in to secure it, then, you know, tough you titties. Get... It's, yeah. you know, yes. dry yes. your eyes and figure it out. Now, when you compare that to the traditional finance system with a mortgage, you've got typically non-performance for maybe three months Mm -hmm. before the bank goes, hey, we've got a problem. We need to manage this client out. And so, okay, so it's three months of non-performance before you're effectively even getting a call from the bank to say, hey, what's going on? Then you've got three months, another three months of non-performance of them saying, hey, pay the bill, pay the bill, pay the bill, pay the bill. And then so it's a six-month process of not getting paid on that that loan before effectively, exactly. you know, the mortgagee in sale or mortgagee in possession comes in and basically the bank comes in, appoints a lawyer, they kick you out of the home and say, we're going to sell it to recover what you owe us. Mm. Now, that whole process could take nine months. Yep. That's a long time to be waiting for your money. Yep. I mean, um, you, know, you compare, you compare yeah. those two systems. 
No, I was going to say other than time, it's all that, all those like in between, right? Like the amount of not only time, but then the amount of effort that needs to be put into this uh, amount of resources that go into like recovering in that nine month process. Yeah. Think about the time and effort and energy that's required to recover that money. Mm. You know, there's probably five or 10 people working on that just to recover that money, that lost interest. And then a family gets kicked out of their home because they haven't paid. Horrible, horrible. Everyone suffers in that environment. You know, I don't think the banks enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. Maybe some predatory lenders, but, you know, the the rules and regulations do a pretty good job of making sure that that doesn't happen these days. But the banks don't enjoy that. They suffer reputationally if they've got to do that. You know, the families suffer for getting kicked out and... It's a horrible process of reclaiming money that everyone's agreed to pay. And when you compare that to the system of Bitcoin, hey, I want a loan. Here's my Bitcoin. Give me my money. If it does X, Y, or Z, take it. Yeah. Okay. There's no, there, there's very, there, there's a much better credit process with Bitcoin as there is with a title deed. And this is where, well, oof, contrary to popular belief, I think the credit market built out on top of Bitcoin is going to be enormous. And when you look at, um, and I might just say, the reason for that is, and and just taking a step back, there are two sort of schools of thought on this from a banking perspective. You've got Michael Saylor saying that Bitcoin's property, and then you've got Bukele telling us that it's a currency. And if I know bankers, I think I've got a pretty good understanding. I've worked in and around banking for a long time. They are going to side with that Bitcoin is a currency rather than Bitcoin is property. And the reason why they're going to do that is because purely from a selfish and, you know, just look at, show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. If it's classified as property, that represents a liability for them. They take that as collateral, but it's someone else's property. Now, you compare that to if they classify it as a currency, what they then get to do is if... You know, let's go back to that story about clients. You know, I'm trying to work them through to the year 2030 where it's 10 million bucks a coin. They give the bank a Bitcoin. It's classified as a currency, not property. That Bitcoin that they've given to them as a loan to borrow on, that can go on their balance sheet as an asset. It's their asset. It's not the client's property anymore. It's their asset. And so what's interesting is, is when it's their asset, they can then leverage that 20x to lend out 20x the amount of the Bitcoin in fiat terms to everyone else. Whereas if it's property, they don't get to lend that, they don't get to 20x that and lend it out. And this is Mm. why I'm looking at this thinking, now there's no way they classify it as property because if they classify it as currency, they all get to make a fortune and lend it out and everyone's happy. So contrary to popular belief, short term, and by short term, I mean, next 15 to 20 years, I think Bitcoin is actually going to expand the credit markets dramatically, mm. like like significantly more from here. And this is coming from someone who thinks that we're at peak debt right now. And the reason why all assets are effectively acting in unison right now is because we've got peak debt where there's peak debt in, in shares. We've effectively had 20, 25 years of share buyback. So literally they're up to their eyeballs in debt, working capital and other corporate bond commitments. The 
property market is effectively in you know, up to their eyeballs in debt. We've just seen rates move from 2% to 6% in Australia, and it's probably, you know, call it 27 to a 7% rate in the US on their 30-year yeah. fixed rate. You know, that's basically a 50, well, it's more than a 50% increase in your monthly repayments. So that kind of is going to have to adjust downwards from a price perspective to meet an equilibrium. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. um, so we're at peak debt with property and we're at peak debt with bonds because we don't have the two, you know, effectively the biggest bond market in the world's the you know, government, government bond market. And you've now got the US, which is the biggest bond issuer in the world. Their two largest customers or purchasers of their US bonds don't want to buy anymore. China said, no, we're mm-hmm. deleveraging or de-risking from owning your bonds. And Japan's turned around and said, we're not that interested in it. We've got our own problems. Yeah. So no yep. one wants more debt. We're at peak debt. And what I'm telling yes. you is that Bitcoin actually has the ability to blow that credit market out 10 or 100x from here. Yeah. Again, lots to unpack there. One thing is, uh, I can't remember. This must be probably Greg Foss said this. So they've kicked the can down the road. So they've gone with credit. So it's gone from from individuals to companies. Now it's from companies to countries, to nation states. And there's no like nowhere further that they can kick this can. Yep. beyond yeah so now it's at this and as you said like china or india for the india russia no one wants to hold on to and i think it was i can't remember is it stacy max and stacy so what they are saying like everyone's playing hot potatoes with u.s bonds they're just passing it on to each other no one wants to hold on to them yeah correct and no one does but this yeah. is because there's a severe lack of equity behind it and why is there a lack of equity it's because we've We've fudged the system for so long. We don't have a hard asset that can't be altered. What we really need is an immutable ledger. Mm. We need an immutable ledger with immutable supply and issuance that couples that with absolute scarcity and censorship resistance and seizure resistance. That sounds like an ideal system to basically underscore our our markets with. And this is where when you see Bitcoin, you realise that's the solution to the problem. And this is where... as sympathetic as I am with a gold standard and, you know, Mm -hmm. I I think a gold standard would be a massive improvement of where we are right now. The the missing link with, say, a gold standard is that we don't have an immutable ledger supplier issuance with it and it's not absolute scarcity. We still rely on the governments who we've, you know, I've just sort of outlined no one one really trusts them anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, do you really want them to entrust them with effectively creating a measuring system? No, thank you. And not when there's a there's a really great measuring system out there that yes. has you know everyone has access to. Yes. So I, I agree with Foss. I think you know they've kicked the can up and up and up. And this is where when you look at that, there's nowhere for that debt to go unless a huge amount of for want of a better term, equity, but value is created. To effectively debase this this credit, and that's what I think happens with Bitcoin. That's why you get an exponential in Bitcoin and a face rip like we cannot possibly fathom. Yep. Just wanted to double click on the money and currency argument. Or so yeah. correct correct me if I'm wrong, but you can classify gold and Bitcoin as money or property. Sorry, I think you were saying property. You can. And then, yeah, yeah. yeah, gold and Bitcoin as property. And then currency is something like banknotes, which and currency basically being something that needs to be backed by something. So like your currency notes are backed by 
used to be backed full, by gold. The, yeah. the full faith of the government. Yeah, now it's, it's yeah. It's now 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 backed by full faith of the government. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah so says so that's a currency that's more yeah so is that right in saying that property is like property doesn't need to be backed by anything but currency would be, need to be backed by something it it used to be right pre 71 i yeah. think mm-hmm. so the only thing you're taking as gospel there now is the full faith of the government and quite frankly like a look at the balance sheet of the governments and you will see that they are in well they've got serious problems so yep. i wouldn't if 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 that was a household you know basically effectively 20 years in credit if the government came to me and said hey give me money and we just basically divided you know whatever the numbers on the government's balance sheet were by a thousand or a million to get mm-hmm. something that resembles what our household budgets look like i wouldn't give them a dollar they're a bad risk the only reason they get money is because they print money and yep. there's no one telling them that you can't have it but mm. by any accounts they they spend more than they earn they're horrible capital allocators there's a huge amount of waste there's no accountability like they sound like a horrible horrible borrower yep yep peter something that we were speaking about just the other day was uh, thermodynamics and you were talking about uh, water in a beaker in three states mhm you want to go there yeah you want to like the of course yeah <laughs> one of my favorites and this is I'm, i'm glad we're having a chat about this this is i i think something that's often overlooked and it's because rightly or wrongly and i'm completely uh beholden to this as well but bitcoiners in general come to bitcoin to get rich and then find you know religion in what it can deliver outside of getting rich the the thing i look at and this is what i find really unique and often gets overlooked in the basically the the desire to understand the the financials behind bitcoin and you know moon math but what's really unique is the tech innovation that goes into bitcoin that fundamentally underwrites the moon math and if we look at that and i just i'll just go through what what you're talking about with the triple point in thermodynamics and bitcoin being the first triple point asset so the triple point in thermodynamics is when in a single place or in a single beaker you can have an element in all three states at the one time and so to to give you a graphical repre- representation of this what you would have is if you have a beaker filled with water or not even call it just a bit of water in there and at room temperature room pressure it's just a effectively a beaker with a bit of water in it but if you apply certain temperatures and certain pressures inside that single beaker that one ecosystem all at the same point in time you will have ice you will have water and you will have steam now this is really unique in that you know naturally occurring in on earth that's not possible but in a beaker under certain pressure under certain temperatures you can have water in it h2o in its three states all in the one beaker and i call bitcoin the first triple point asset because for the first time in history you have the ability to have one asset in all three states of money at the same time 
you effectively have Bitcoin as a store of value. You have Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. You have Bitcoin as a unit of account all at the one point in time. And what allows for that to happen is you've effectively got those four or three, depending on how you want to call it, those tech innovations effectively allow for Bitcoin to exist in those three states at the one time. And let me just go through those with you. So what I'm talking about is store of value, mean of exchange, unit of account. When we look at store of value, what makes a good store of value? Well, we want to, you know, there's a whole host of things that make store of value a good store of value. Mm -hmm. What has been the best store of value over the last 2,000 years, literally since Jesus was a boy? Well, it was gold. That was fundamentally our benchmark. I know in time there's been salt and some other stuff and the rest of it, but let's just say it was gold for all intents and purposes. It's still relevant today. It's a $10 trillion market cap. What makes gold fundamentally a great store of value is that it's really hard to produce and it's got a very low stock-to-flow ratio. That's been consistent over time, which has made it a great store of value, and that's why people do it. Now, what's really interesting is is that Bitcoin is a great store of value, and I know people are going to say, oh, but it's off whatever. It's like in the last 12 months, sure, it's off a little bit, but I'm thinking long-term here, and you're just going to have to bear with me. But from a store of value perspective, Bitcoin has all of the properties of gold. However, it's got a number of others which make it a better gold than gold and what I call a superstore of value. And when you think of the tech innovations that have helped improve, well, that have basically been found in Bitcoin that make Bitcoin better than gold, let's go through it. Firstly, you've got absolute scarcity. There is no more than 21 million ever which beats a 2% stock-to-flow ratio. Yep. Well, that's better. That's a big improvement. Absolute mm-hmm. scarcity. We, we, we've we never seen that before on Earth in an asset. This is an invention, a one-time invention. Secondly, when it comes to store of value, seizure resistance, that has never been done before either. I can walk around with 12 words in my head yep. and no one can take it from me. For the first time in history, I can go to my grave with an asset and no one can take it from me. To understand how profound that is, think about this in a historical context. The pharaohs, conjecture, but the pharaohs basically built these huge pyramids as effectively vaults, safes, to fill up with gold to take to the afterlife with them. Now, if they had Bitcoin, they'd never have to build a pyramid because they'd remember 12 words And they'd just get chucked in the desert and no one would have built anything for them. It's a wild thought. So I'm kind of glad it wasn't around 2,000 or 5,000 years ago when they were building these things. Otherwise, we wouldn't have them. And this is a profound impact on what we've got now. And guess what? In light of what's happened in the last, say, 12 to 14 months with Russia having its foreign reserves stolen, well, not stolen, Mm. they're withheld. They no longer have control of the $500 billion that they, yep. they saved and left in the SWIFT system. However, if they held that in Bitcoin, no one could have done that. Now, I'm not making any political commentary around the Ukraine-Russia war. I'm just, you know, it's a really interesting thing to note that they effectively use the wrong store of value, yep. leaving it on the SWIFT system. So all of a sudden, here's a really compelling use case that has never been able to be done before with bitcoin so 
from a store of value perspective, those two things are really profound and are a step change improvement on the functionality of a store of value. When you overlay the fact that Bitcoin's digital so you can transport it anywhere in the world with an internet connection, then that just adds another level of improvement to the functionality of store of value. So all of a sudden, Bitcoin has the ability to displace gold as a store of value. And I credit VJ with his book, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, which I think gives the most um, compelling argument as to why Bitcoin would, would replace gold. However, that's a $10 trillion market, market cap and Bitcoin's at, say, 300 or 400 billion. So Bitcoin can basically 25x from here to gain that that, fun, yes. that that value. Well, that's a huge thing. And then when you look at medium exchange, and I don't really like talking about this medium exchange argument because I think it's a bit of a fool's goal. Like, I don't think it's a great argument, but... Yep. Bitcoin, I'll go down that, that road anyway. From media exchange perspective, what's really critical is that Bitcoin, for the first time in history, has the ability to have or provide the user of the network censorship resistance. Mm-hmm. So regardless of you know what the authorities say, as long as you're abiding by the rules of Bitcoin, you can send money to anyone anywhere in the world who's got internet connection. That's a huge deal. All of a sudden, you know, in light of what's gone on in the last, say, 12 to 18 months, you saw the Canadian truckers last February, last January, whatever it was, FOSS was involved with that. And mm-hmm. basically the Canadian government, one of the most, you know, one of the great Western democracies of the world, basically closed all of the the, the protesters' bank accounts and shut them off so they'd go home, removed access for their money. However, they were still able to receive money in the form of Bitcoin because it's censorship resistant. And that's a huge step function change or improvement on what we see with the mean of exchange. Now, if you look at the mean of exchange market, that's typically the US dollar market, which is roughly $100 trillion. That accounts for 80% of global trade. Now, <clears throat> I think the US dollar right now is a better mean of exchange than Bitcoin, but because Bitcoin's got that built-in functionality of censorship resistance, it will one day be a better better form of money than or medium exchange than US dollar. Yep. Also the fact that it's got immediate settlement and you know yep. be, anyone who's got a phone can can access that. That so that's a big improvement too. Yeah, so that's a super I mean, medium exchange. Just just to, with micropayments, right? It's not possible to make micropayments with a current form of money. But with Bitcoin that's going to be possible. So Correct. yeah I was, ha- I was having this conversation with a friend and it's like Imagine, imagine we're switching on our lights, switching off, and we are paying for electricity just for that fraction instead of getting a bill at the end of the month, right? Like each time you're switching something on and off, or like we've seen it with podcasting or music, like you can stream while you're listening to it. You're paying as and when you listen to it, but not, not as a monthly subscription to a service, but as and when you're using the service. Netflix, yeah. for example, yeah. Totally. Or, yeah. you know, like, I, I love that thought. All of a sudden, micropayments. I'm probably a little bit negative on on Lightning, rightly mm. or wrongly. I, I don't know if that's the correct payment or, or the layer two to be doing, you know, micropayments on. But what's really interesting is that that has the ability to be done, which when you couple that with censorship resistant and it's internet enabled, well, I think it's a fundamentally much better system with immediate settlement. 
that's a much better system than the current mean of exchange that we're yep. running now. And so what we've got is we've got a mean of exchange, which is the US dollar, and then we've got a super mean of exchange with Bitcoin that allows for all of those other functionalities on top of fundamentally what the US dollar does. And the final thing or final use case of money, which I think is the granddaddy of them all, but sadly it's the most unloved. However, to me, it's the most exciting because it represents the biggest market cap. That's the biggest addressable market that Bitcoin has is the unit of account. Mm. And I think that unit of account market is fundamentally a $2,000 trillion market. And once we get our heads around the fact that this is the first accounting upgrade that we've had since the Renaissance, it's the first triple entry ledger system that we've had. It's the first system that provides an immutable ledger. These are the tech innovations that go into displacing our current double entry ledger system that we've got and will effectively account for all value. And this is where I think we're looking at things with a very myopic view if we look at, hey, we want to dominate mean of exchange. I want to dominate store of value, which I think we've done, and I want to dominate unit of account because with those two markets controlling those two markets, firstly, the total addressable market cap is over $2,000 trillion. And you have no regulatory oversight. You're not stepping on anyone's toes. You're not upsetting anyone. You're not you know, gaining the wrath of the US government who says, hey, come and use our US dollar. You know, the Libyan, Iraq governments basically found out the hard way that you should use the US dollar because if you don't, you're going to get messed up. Yep. So, you know, unit of account and store of value don't have any consideration for the US government. They don't have any consideration for the ECB. It's just a, it's effectively an accounting system that we're using. However, it accounts for $2,000 trillion worth of value which is a market that's 200 times bigger than the store of value market of $10 trillion in gold. And I look at that and I think, wow, for the first time ever, and basically wrapping this back into Bitcoin being the first triple point asset, what you've got for the first time in history is you've got one asset that is the best store of value, the best meme exchange, and the best unit of account all at the same time. Yep. It's like water. It's like water in that beaker under pressure, under a certain temperature, creating those three conditions, ice, steam, and water, all in the one beaker. Mm. And so when you think about this from a valuation perspective, and this is where it gets really interesting, and I'm happy for anyone to give me fault in logic on this, but you effectively create a competitive tension for the first time in history of competitive tension between store of value, mean of exchange, and unit of account. And this yep. is where things just turn into an exponential very, very quickly. We've never seen three different modalities of money competing for a, a single asset in history. It's never happened. We've had, for 2,000 years, we've had gold as our store of value function. For the last 100 years, we've had US dollars, and then you can take any iteration of that back 2,000 years. But we're working with, excuse me, we're working with US dollars now for the medium exchange. We now have a super mean of exchange in the form of Bitcoin. Excuse me. And then mm. unit of account. For the first time in history, if you look at the history of accounting and literally accounting makes my eyes glaze over, so I'm really sorry for anyone listening to this to actually talk about this, but you're going to want to listen because this is where all the juice is from a value and market cap perspective and why Bitcoin goes exponential. So just bear with me. So accounting. We start with a single entry ledger system. Basically, I would write down what I owe people. That's it. 
Then we went to in the called the 1600s, and there's conjecture around, you know, the, the Arabs basically or the Persians had a double entry ledger system for thousands of years. But let's give credit to the, you know, the Venetians who basically exploded global trade on the back of this double entry ledger system, which was literally an accounting invention. And what that meant was every debit, every credit, there were two double entry per ledger for every transaction that happened. And that was a big deal. That led to an explosion, basically, you know, the Renaissance has been credited with with mm-hmm. this double entry ledger system. It was a huge deal. Now, for the last, what is it, 500 years, roughly, we haven't had an accounting innovation and along comes Bitcoin. It's fundamentally a triple entry ledger system. So when I send you a Bitcoin, I know I've sent you a Bitcoin. You know you've received a Bitcoin. And then the entire network knows that this wallet sent that wallet a Bitcoin. This is revolutionary. This is fundamentally a complete shift from this double entry ledger system that we're working with. And what what that means is that is going to, when, when you put this in the context of how we look at this triple point asset, when you look at Bitcoiners, where I think we've had a, a logical fallacy in thinking about how big the market cap is going to be for Bitcoin, we've looked at effectively a linear accretion of value mm. because that's how our minds operate. We're effectively not much up on a you know a chimpanzee and our brains don't understand exponentials very well. But we've got a linear accretion of value. So most people look at the $10, bill or $10 trillion market cap of gold and they say, great, we can achieve that because we're better. You know, it's a super store of value and it's a super mean of exchange. So add the $10 trillion of gold plus the $100 trillion of the USD plus the $2,000 trillion of the unit of account because this is a triple entry ledger system and way better than the, the unit of account that we've got now with a double entry ledger. So you add all those up, you get to $2.1 quadrillion dollars in simple terms, divide that by 21 million, we get to a $100 million market cap. Simple. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. But that's assuming that Bitcoin just takes each of those categories. But what I'm telling you is I think that's the wrong way of looking at it because for the first time in history, we actually have competition between store of value, mean of exchange, and unit of account. And so rather than thinking it's a linear accretion of value, it's actually going to be an exponential accretion of value where you're going to have a a calculation of this that looks more like rather than SOV plus MOE plus UOE, you're going to have store of value multiplied by mean of exchange multiplied by unit of account, which comes up with a stupid number, insert stupid number here. (laughs) But to me, that makes a lot more sense that it's an exponential valuation, not a linear accretion of value because of that competition. And so this is where... When you understand the tech behind Bitcoin and the improvements that that delivers to the modalities of money that we're holding, all of a sudden that unlocks the ability to see Bitcoin as the first triple point asset, that it is the best of all three modalities of money at the first time. And it enables us to, I believe, think logically and rationally that the better way of understanding what the potential for Bitcoin is, is it's going to be a competition amongst those modalities to, to generate or to purchase Bitcoin. So it's going to be an exponential up. And that's the first first time in history that we've seen that. And then one further extension to that is, is that when you, when you have the 
an asset that has absolute scarcity, censorship resistance, seizure resistance, and immutable ledger supply and issuance, when you have the ability to time lock that Bitcoin, all of a sudden, this is a complete game changer. So when you can time lock an asset that has all of those effectively innovations that we've never seen before, you have the first quantum asset. And by quantum asset, there are many different ways that you can sort of describe that. But what I, what I look at is this is the first quantum asset that enables you to maintain its quantum through time. There's no yeah. dilution, inflation. Peter, just a There's quick no... question that if it's the first quantum asset, does it also make it the last quantum asset? I don't know. So I, like, I, I I don't know. I I, I don't know, but those those are those are one time innovations. So exactly, I, I would say yeah. that it's the last one. Last one as well, right? Because you can only solve the inflation problem once. If you try to solve it twice, you're just creating more inflation. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point, I I, I don't know, but those are one time inventions. Mm. So logically yeah like, like as safety dean would put it you can only and like the wheel is invented only once right you can't reinvent the wheel yeah. <laughs> i love safety dean god he's good yes <laughs> you can't and and so this is where i look at that and i think well yeah fundamentally this is the first and last quantum asset we don't have another asset like it ever again mm. and guess what you get to buy it for 23 grand us now or less i'm like this is so cheap if people understood what the implications were from a societal perspective moving forward or finance perspective moving forward, oh, my God. Like, you know, I go to bed at night thinking, is this the night I wake up and Bitcoin's going to set a new you know, floor in price at over a million dollars? <laughs> and I'm not even joking. Like, you look at supply-demand, and this is where, you know, I, I can talk on a triple-point asset and a quantum asset as long as you want. I think time-locking is going to have a significant impact on our society moving forward because it'll enables us for the first time in history to lock collateral up without rehypothecation and without dilution. Now, that's the first time in history that that's been able to happen, and that's a big fucking deal. But I don't hear anyone talking about it. I'm like, this totally redefines our financial system. It's an event horizon. It's a singularity, whatever you want to describe it. It's it's a big big deal, but no one's really looking at it. And you can still buy Bitcoin for twenty three grand, and we're sitting here talking about it. I don't hear anyone else talking about it. I'm yeah. like, yeah, you know, Once that sort of seeps into the consciousness of or the broader consciousness of society, it's going to be like, oh my yeah. god, I I can't believe I, yeah, it's you know, sitting right there. Like, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing that we looked at it. Like, oh. I didn't see it for the last five years or whatever. When was the last you when you got into Bitcoin? It's like, why did I yeah, miss it then? And then there yeah, people that are coming on will be like, oh, it's been this thing has been sitting out for 15 years and I haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And I I, I suffer from that. We all suffer from that. And you know, the good thing is, and you know, I, I love listening to Luke Broyles. I think he's a great talent and yeah. really happy he's in the space. He's so clever. Uh, you know, we all think we're late to it, but fact is we're all early. No matter mm. when you get it, we're early. And this is where, yep. you know, it's the stock to flow really moves to stock to FOMO. And part of sort of discussing that, I don't feel comfortable talking about price expectations and, you know, redefining that. But what's really important, I think, is to have a framework for valuing Bitcoin 
And the problem that we've had in developing a framework for valuing Bitcoin is that we haven't, firstly, we've got four key technology, you know, step function changes that we've never seen before that are big, big deals. You know, absolute scarcity in its own right is a huge deal. An immutable ledger in its own right is a massive deal. Censorship resistance, a huge deal. Seizure mm. resistance, a mega deal. And so what I think often gets passed over is that these are enormous innovations with enormous market caps in their own right. But because Bitcoin effectively created all of them at once and said, hey, I'm going to give you shit you don't even understand yet, <laughs> our, our little you know, reptilian brains haven't figured out, oh, my goodness, this is an unlock for value, but it's an unlock for society too. This is a mega, mega deal. And sadly, I spend probably more time than I should talking about Bitcoin with clients because I want them to understand yep. as big a deal as that is. And I guess what gives me confidence in sort of thinking and talking about this so much is that, you know, you've got to have confidence that the system is not going to break. Yes. And I look at Bitcoin and I think, well, the assumptions I make in, you know, what we discussed is, and we probably should have started there, but I didn't. So, you know, the assumptions I'm making is that you know, other than the sun coming up tomorrow, the thing I'm most sure of is that the Bitcoin network is going to continue working. Yep. That is a huge assumption. Now, how what gives me what gives me, yeah. I guess, confidence to say that? Well, basically looking at this thing for the last 11 years, watching, you know, China banning Bitcoin mining and in April 21. Mm-hmm. Literally more than half the Bitcoin miners getting turned off overnight. Yep. Bitcoin didn't miss a beat. It's been through, excuse me, it's been through a block war. It's gone through all of these trials and tribulations that nothing else has. And no other asset on earth even comes close to having those technological innovations that can deliver a triple point asset and evolve into a quantum asset. This is where it's like, it's over. It's a fate complete. Yes, yes. Peter, before, yeah, I know we have been taking too much of your time, but one last question before you go is, how does one buy, maybe you choose not to answer this, but how does one buy at this stage $1 million worth of Bitcoin? Is it gradually? Is it like a lump sum? How does one go about doing that? That's a great question. Talking about, how to entry into the market? Yeah, but with like a large chunk. I, I think it depends on a host of things. And I'll I'll sort of give you a framework for how we think about it with clients. Mm-hmm. If we had a client come to us tomorrow and say, hey, I want to buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Yep. Firstly, I want to understand what percentage of their net assets that accounts for. You know, is a million dollars is a million dollars a hundred percent of their net assets, mm. or is it one percent? Is it half a percent? And what I would tell them is, is it if if you're planning on doing that, and because I think the question revolves around, are you lump summing or are you DCAing into Bitcoin? Is that fundamentally the question? Yes. Uh, and also the, so, so say we are lump sum, like someone wants to go lump sum straight into this thing. Are there any, so more so, are there any like on ramps for that? Oh, yeah, you can get a million bucks. Easy. Okay. Easy. Yeah, multiple on ramps in Australia and 
hundreds. Well, not maybe not hundreds, but there's there are multiple at least options. there's yep. ten providers at least that I know of that can do multiple, yeah, tens of millions type thing. It okay. would require an OTC trade typically. Okay. Um, but from a from a if a client came tomorrow and said, "Hey, I want to buy a million bucks worth," if mm-hmm. if they were worth say twenty million dollars, which is maybe a maybe not a, a typical client to be a, a small client, but if a client had net assets of $20 million and they came to me and said, hey, I want to buy a million dollars tomorrow um, or I want to buy a million dollars rather than DCAing for them. If they had capacity to do $2 million because they were sitting on another million dollars of cash, I'd tell them to buy a million dollars tomorrow. And understood. on the proviso that if Bitcoin halves, when they put the million dollars in, I want to come back and get the other million and buy another million dollars worth of Bitcoin for them. So they've put $2 million into Bitcoin and they've got one and a half million. Mm. Now, it doesn't often work that way, but that's what I would suggest to them. And what we you know, try and get clients comfortable with is basically spending as much time with them, educating and talking to them about the opportunity and what are the risks. And we spent a lot of time talking about opportunities, but talking about the risk and back to that, Bitcoin's the most secure network I've seen. And as long as it continues to work, then that value accretion will continue to go to Bitcoin. The second it stops working, I'm out, all bets are off. But until it proves me otherwise, then that's the deterministic path that Bitcoin's on, basically to expand the value pie dramatically. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for your time. Any closing thoughts? Anything that you want to leave? Or you want to give the audience where where can they find you? I'll have it in the show notes as well. Yeah. Sure thing. Dunworth, uh, sorry, on Twitter is probably the best place to find me. Uh, Dunworth underscore Peter. Uh, If you've got any questions, just shoot me a DM or tag me in a tweet. Happy to answer any questions for any high net worth families out there that need help. Basically, with collaborative custody and a multi-sig arrangement, we've got years and years of uh, success in that in that state. So, uh, if you need any help, I'd welcome any uh, and all inquiries with that respect. And otherwise, please do me a favour, everyone listening. If you're not already self-custodying your Bitcoin, please get your Bitcoins off the exchange. 100%. It's the most selfish thing. It's the most selfish thing you can do to help the Bitcoin price go up. And I have a dream that in the next five years or before 2030 i I would love to see less than 500,000 bitcoins on exchange that that would ensure that the price of bitcoin goes up dramatically and it's probably the single most important thing that we can do to ensure price integrity and the price of bitcoin going up so yeah yeah merrick merrick thank you it's always great to chat with you and really appreciate your time so Thanks, Peter. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you in person. So we're going to meet at the Bush Bash. And then, so shout out to the Bush Bash. I'll put some, yeah, put that in the show notes as well for people that want to come there. And uh, and then Bitcoin Alive, the Australia's first uh, Bitcoin conference, which is going to be exciting. There's going to, Kanut's going to be there as well. So other than um, that, yeah. I've got to say, they are two fabulous events. I'm really yes. looking forward to the Bush Bash. That's something I absolutely love. Yeah. Um, Wiz, Wiz and Sir William, yeah. two fabulous, fabulous personalities who I have a very soft spot for. I love, yeah. love both those guys. And then Bitcoin Alive. I'm so excited about our first Australian-only Bitcoin conference. 
I'm really looking forward to catching up. I'm so excited to see some of those speakers there. Those boys have done a great job in yep. wrangling, you know, some fabulous minds to to learn from. So I'm I'm also looking forward to catching up with with you up there too. So it's going to be Bye great. Guys. Yeah. See you, Peter. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, all I ask is that you share it with one other person. And I also recommend that you use podcasting 2.0 apps like Breeze or Fountain FM. I'll link them down below. This will help you earn Bitcoin while you listen and it will also help support the show. Once again, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one.